Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. Thanks for listening, and please click that important subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast, and remember, it's always free to do so. This episode will have lots of images to look at and links to click to supplement the information that you hear, so head over to brentwatkinson.com, click that podcast icon, and you should be able to find it from there. As many of you know, or may remember from the very first podcast of this series, I am a nerd, and I grew up during the space program in the 1960s and was keenly interested in all things pertaining to space, space travel, the astronauts, and NASA. I later pursued NASA as a working artist and was part of the NASA Fine Arts program for two years. That was a dream come true for this Ozark hillbilly from the sticks. So this episode has special meaning to me for sure. This episode is also a little different than most because I will not be speaking to or just about one artist in particular, but a vast array of artistic people and artistic endeavors. I'm referring to the countless mathematicians, engineers of all types, craftspeople, seamstresses, glove makers, mold makers, visionaries, welders, philosophers, psychologists and psychiatrists, all these amazing people that also built machines that helped them build other machines to do things that they thought were not possible. People that used creative thinking and problem solving to figure out how to do things that had never been thought of before, breaking ground with gender barriers, race barriers, creativity barriers, Nothing mattered except solving the problem at hand and moving on to the next step. I'm talking about the 50th anniversary of the flight of Apollo 11, the first flight to land humans on the moon and return them safely. And when they accomplished this task, this incredible, heretofore unknown and unrealized triumph it all became possible due to the work of the previous 11 years of NASA, but maybe even more importantly, the thoughts and wonderlust of the human race for thousands of years before that. On July 16th, 1969, the Saturn V rocket lifted off of the launch pad at Cape Canaveral in Florida on the east coast of the United States. And on July 20th, humans landed on the surface to collect samples and deploy an array of experiments that would send information and data back to the earth long after the humans were gone. I will discuss some of the people involved that were of note for many reasons. Then I will give you what I call a cartoon color book outline of how the flight to the moon worked. After that, I will flesh out some of the details to give you a more robust clarification. It's pretty conversational with interesting little tidbits of details here and there and some stories about specifics along the way. And I don't think it really gets bogged down with too much science and numbers in a data sort of way. But some of the numbers and volumes and scales are so interesting and outside the realm of comprehension that I think they're worth mentioning and thinking about. So here we go. Off to the moon and back. Let's get into it.
The crew of Apollo 11 were the top layer of molecules of an enormous pyramid of men, women, machines, math, resources, effort, time, suicides, divorces, heart attacks, artistry of all kinds using intuition, gut feelings, unknown science, never before contemplated procedures, education, failures, and successes. All of these things and more went into the valiant effort to make the ultimate exploration that humans had endeavored to achieve. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, was founded on July 29, 1958. Eleven years later, NASA put two men on the moon while another orbited our beautiful natural satellite waiting to take them home after their exploration of the surface. We all know it was done, but how did they actually do it? How do you get to the moon? How do you get back? How do you get off the ground? How do you get into Earth orbit? Once you're in orbit, what then? What if you have two vehicles that need to find each other in orbit? How do you calculate when to flip the switch on your rocket engine and head toward the moon? All right, I'm going to take a whack at explaining this to you in a simplified manner, as conversational as I can. And it will be simplified because I only understand a tiny portion of the process and on an elemental level. But I think I can get across to you how this monstrous event took place in terms that will give you a new or renewed interest in the whole thing. There have been several movies out in the past couple of years that celebrate and extend our working knowledge of many details and underlying stories, not only of things, but of the people. And the people are really what matter because they are the driving factors. The people built the machines. The people did the math. The people went up there and came back. Gotta have the hardware. Gotta have the software. But people do it. People made it. Not only is there a recent movie actually titled Apollo 11, which is a sort of documentary about the timeline of the launch, the landing, and return of Apollo 11, but another film titled First Man, which is about Neil Armstrong, the commander of Apollo 11, and the first person to step foot on the moon that we know of, haha. I've read many interesting books about how the crews of Apollo missions were decided by a lottery system, but in my mind, I feel strongly that Neil Armstrong... Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins were hand-picked for this mission, the mission that actually was the first lunar landing. Maybe I'll do a podcast on why I think Neil was totally put in this slot on purpose and not by lottery. Another recent movie was titled Hidden Figures. I hope you saw that movie, which is about three African-American women mathematicians that worked for NASA. They were key to much of the math and complex calculations that are needed to put objects in motion in space and how those objects act and react. Mary Jackson, Katherine Johnson, and Dorothy Vaughn are their names. This movie is definitely worth watching. And remember, this was a time when both women and African Americans were viewed as almost a subclass of society. But these women helped change the world, a tiny bit perhaps, 
and they had the strength to live and do their brilliant work in this bigoted, male-dominated, white workplace. But they knew it was important, and they were brilliant. They had a tough job just being at work every day, and they lived through it and made a difference. But there are many, many other women as well, one of which was Frances Poppy Northcutt. I love that, uh, that nickname, Poppy. Poppy's experience with working on the Apollo 8 mission is detailed in a PBS documentary, Makers, Women in Space, the third film in a series of six documentaries about women pioneers. And Apollo 8 was the very first spacecraft to ever leave Earth orbit, get away from the gravitational pull of Earth, and go to another celestial body. Apollo 8, of course, went to the moon, orbited the moon on Christmas Eve of 1968, and the crew read the creation story from Genesis in the Bible. And I remember watching that on live television, and of course, I was going nuts watching that whole thing. Very interesting times. And another person I will quickly mention is John C. Hubolt. And this guy figured out how and why lunar orbit rendezvous would be the ticket to getting people to the moon and back. And I will explain that a little bit later. And it took a while for folks to get on board with his idea, but now it doesn't seem possible any other way. So I'll talk about lunar orbit rendezvous later on because it truly is important, fascinating, and it seems impossible to a guy like me that has really, really bad math skills. I want to give you a really ridiculously simple timeline, step-by-step, of what happened on this flight to the moon and back. And remember, I'm leaving out 11 years of testing and hard work to get to this point in July of 1969. I'm leaving out the entire Mercury program and the Gemini program, which were the stepping stones that the Apollo program was completely dependent and relying on. I'm going to talk fast and glossed over a lot of things here for a minute, but then I'll slow down and I'll explain it all later. But for now, here goes. You launch the Saturn V rocket and it gets you pretty high and pretty fast, but not high enough or fast enough to be in Earth orbit. You ignite stage two of the rocket and it does get you high and fast enough to stay in orbit around the Earth. You do some math, maybe have a snack, Then you ignite the engine on the third stage of the rocket that pushes you toward where the moon is supposed to be in two and a half days. You unhook from the third stage, turn the rocket around, pull out the moon lander, hook up to it, turn back towards the moon, and wait two and a half days. When you get close enough to the moon that its gravity grabs you and swings you around it, if you do nothing, you will be slingshotted back to Earth without doing a thing. However, if you fire your rocket and slow down, you will be caught in lunar orbit around the moon. Then, two astronauts crawl through the tunnel into the LEM, the Lunar Excursion Module, or Moon Lander rocket part. You separate from the Command Service Module, and you go down to the lunar surface. In the meantime, One astronaut is still orbiting the moon in the command service module. 
You place a boatload of experiments on the surface, grab a bunch of rocks and dirt, get back on board the LEM or the Lunar Excursion Module, ignite the ascent engine, and half of your craft stays on the moon while the top half takes the two astronauts and the dirt and the rocks back up into lunar orbit where the command service module is orbiting. You connect both ships together again. You transfer your rocks and the astronauts to the service command module. You separate from the LEM and point the rocket towards the big black hole in the sky where the Earth should be in two and a half days. After doing more math and lots of radar work, you jettison the service module from the command module. You go through the 5,000 degree fiery re-entry process and land in the Pacific Ocean where you put on your biohazard suit so you accidentally don't infect the human race with moon diseases and wait patiently in a quarantine trailer for 21 days before you begin your life as the first people to walk on the moon's surface. Okay, let's look at this a little slower now, if anyone is still listening. Again, I don't want this to get bogged down with endless detail, so I'll try to keep it moving and hit the high points. High points. Get it? High points. Uh, anyway, here we go. I'll start by briefly telling you the difference between a rocket engine and all other engines. The engine in your car, your lawnmower, an airplane, a jet airliner, all do the same thing. They take fuel, like gasoline or jet fuel, mix it with air, compress it, ignite it, and it makes a controlled explosion. That's why some aircraft can only go so high, because the air, and especially the oxygen in the air, at a high altitude is too thin to combust with the fuel. Down on the ground at lower altitudes, there is ample oxygen in the air to ignite with the fuel. So the air, in this case, is referred to as the oxidizer for the fuel. You have to have fuel, you have to have oxygen, and a spark. Boom. That's, that's an engine. Rockets, on the other hand, carry their own oxidizer so that the rockets can function at any altitude or in the vacuum of space. They carry their own fuel and their own oxidizer that mix together, get ignited, and then those two components react, usually with an ignition source, to combust in a violent manner. On a rocket, the ignited fuel shoots out the back of the rocket, and physics takes over in the form of Newton's third law. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So the fuel ignites and is pushed out one end, and that in turn pushes the rocket in the opposite direction. All right, let's take a look at the big old Saturn V rocket, which is the launch vehicle that sent all of the Apollo spacecraft to the moon. And the Saturn V rocket, you all know it, you've seen pictures of it, that big, giant, vertical, black and white rocket with wisps of what looks like white smoke leaking from it, sitting on the launch pad, looking like it's about to burst or blow up. Those wisps of smoke are actually wisps of liquid oxygen boiling off from the oxidizer tanks. Uh, this rocket was 360 feet tall, or 111 meters, and that is taller than an American football field is long. And the astronauts were in the very, very tippy-top little pyramid-shaped nose cone. So let's talk about those first stages. The first stage had five 
big, giant, amazing F1 engines that produced 7.5 million pounds of thrust. I know we're going to get into some numbers here, but it's pretty cool when you think about it. The fuel, remember, every uh, rocket has to have fuel and it has to have its own oxidizer. So the fuel was kerosene and the oxidizer was liquid oxygen and it used 214,000 gallons of kerosene and 346,000 gallons of liquid oxygen. And that is roughly 12 railroad tank cars of liquid oxygen. And we're just talking about the first stage. We're talking about the bottom third of the rocket. And that's about seven railroad cars of kerosene. And that is an amazing thing to me. So the next time you're stuck watching a train go in front of you at a railroad crossing, see if you can count 19 railroad tank cars. And that's what it took to fuel the bottom stage. And they used kerosene for the bottom stage because it was so dense that it was a really serious, violent reaction when mixed with its oxidizer. And remember, oxidizers is what makes the fuel explosive. So the liquid oxygen was used as an oxidizer on all of the engines on the launch vehicle, but not the engines in the command module, the service module, or the lunar excursion module. And remember when I talk about the service command module, that's the thing that orbited the moon while the LEM, the lunar excursion module was landing on the moon. So we'll talk about those later. So the first stage just used absolute brute force to lift off the ground and to get the thing moving. Once in the air, it picked up speed and started pointing a little more horizontally because not only did you have to go up, you had to go laterally too because you wanted to go around the earth, not just simply away from it because that was not possible with that machinery. So as it picked up speed, it started laying over on its side a little bit and it actually began to roll slightly. And I'll talk about that a little bit later so that the astronauts were basically lying down on their couches with their head pointing down and they were going through such violent g-forces that that helped the blood flow to their brain okay i told you this was a violent brute force thing so the first stage engines are burned at liftoff for about two and a half minutes taking the vehicle and the payload to an altitude of about 38 40 miles and topped off at 6,000 miles per hour. That's fast. So the first stage then separates, burns up going back into the Earth's atmosphere, and they on, you only need to be about 115 miles above the Earth for orbit. But the key is you need to be traveling fast, and I mean at least 14,700 miles an hour. Let's round that up to 15,000 to maintain orbit. The space shuttle, and we all are familiar with the space shuttle, I hope, its orbit was on average 225 miles high at about 18,000 miles an hour, depending on the mission. So the higher you are in orbit, actually, the slower you go, the lower your orbit, the faster you go. So while the first stage is burning and accelerating, the astronauts were experiencing about four to five G's. That means their bodies 
were as if they weighed four to five times normal as they were being pushed back into their couches. So the astronauts were strapped into these couches, basically lying down. And as the rocket went more and more horizontally, it rotated so that their heads were below their feet to aid in blood flow to their brains. They were essentially upside down. The whole rocket launch thing is this incredibly violent, vibrating, controlled explosion. Not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. So if an astronaut weighed 150 pounds normally during this first stage flight, the astronaut felt as if he would weigh 750 pounds. As I said, there were five big, giant, honking F1 engines on the first stage, but these brute force bad boys could not be throttled. I mean, you turned them on, and it was Katie bar the door. You turned them on, they were 100% go throttle up the whole time. So as the launch vehicle got lighter, as it burned massive amounts of fuel, it accelerated faster and faster and faster, and it was in danger of tearing itself apart because they're still down in that really thick atmosphere of lower Earth. And they were moving so fast that finally the center engine would be shut down so that it wouldn't tear itself apart, basically, and to protect the ship and the crew from excessive G-forces. So the thick atmosphere at low altitudes would have torn the rocket apart because it was going so fast and in, in that thick air. But as they passed what was called Max Q, they were safe from being torn to bits by the, uh, the air pressure on the vehicle at that point. So after the first stage did its job, the astronauts referred to the next exciting few seconds as the train wreck. And here's why they called it the train wreck. When the first stage was accelerating faster and faster and faster and faster, these guys were being like pushed back into their couches and they weighed, you know, 750 pounds. When the first stage shut down, the acceleration stopped abruptly and the astronauts were no longer pushed back into their couches, but the opposite was happening. Their bodies were now being shoved forward against their restraints, putting enormous pressure on their chest and lungs as their bodies were still moving super fast due to inertia, but the vehicle was slowing down because it no longer was being thrust forward by those burning engines. So the first stage dropped away, and seconds later, the second stage ignited violently and slammed them back into their couches as another round of incredible acceleration was taking place. So remember, they were traveling about 6,000 miles an hour at this time, 40 miles above the Earth, but they still needed to be at 115 miles altitude at about 15,000 miles an hour. That's when stage two of the rocket comes in. So the second stage had five what were called J2 engines, and they burned liquid hydrogen as the fuel, and again, liquid oxygen as the oxidizer. And the second stage burned, okay, the first stage burned for two and a half minutes. Brute force, get them up in the air. The second stage, its job was to get high enough and fast enough so that you could maintain Earth orbit. By the time 
the second stage burned for six to 12 minutes, probably closer to 12 minutes. Uh, they did reach that height of 115 miles and they were about 950 miles away. It's called downrange. They were 950 lateral miles away from Florida where they started and their speed was about 15,500 miles an hour. At this point, the fuel was spent. The second stage dropped off and would soon burn up in the atmosphere as it fell to earth. While now we have the third stage and the rest of the rocket that had achieved the orbit altitude and speed. So here we are in low earth orbit, a thousand miles down range from Cape Canaveral in Florida. We are 115 miles high above the earth. We are traveling at 15,000 miles an hour, high enough and fast enough to orbit the earth. So we're good. From ignition to orbit took about 15 minutes, give or take a minute or two. And in that 15 minutes, 915,000 gallons of fuel and oxidizer were burned. This was an intense, violent, controlled fury of high speed, high volume pumps delivering thousands and thousands of gallons of explosive fuels together to be ignited that would result in this unbelievably savage and potent straining of people and machine. The spacecraft now had the remaining third stage attached to it, and it's gliding above the good Earth, the good blue marble of Earth, and in front of that stage, hidden away, with its legs slightly folded to save space, was the Lunar Excursion Module, and I will refer to that many times as the LEM, the L-E-M, Lunar Excursion Module. And the Lunar Excursion Module was protected by the exterior metal of the rocket. And on top of that was the service module. And on the very top of that was the command module. And the command module were where the astronauts were. And later you'll hear me talk about the, the uh, SCM, the service command module. The service module and the command module were hooked up together. And they didn't separate until the very last minute during reentry. So the service module was what had the big rocket engine and it had their liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen that they used to produce electricity and water. They had all kinds of equipment. They had the radio equipment. The whole, the whole shooting match was on this service module. And at the very top, that's where the astronauts were during liftoff and will be on reentry. They are laying there on their couches and they had, you know, the enormous bank of switches in the cockpit there. So the command service module, I will refer to many times later in this podcast. So the next step was to leave the gravitational pull of the earth, which had never been done before Apollo eight. And that's when Poppy Northcutt's math came into, into play. And you needed to get away from the gravitational pull of the earth and head towards the moon. Sounds easy enough, but the math that was involved, that's really what held things up for quite a long time in the early stages of NASA. Here's what you need to do. Fire your rocket, fire this big third stage rocket when you are on the side of the earth 
facing away from the moon, you're still in low Earth orbit, and you're being pulled and held back by Earth's gravity. And the Earth is holding you in a circular orbit while the ship is sliding along with this massive rocket firing, trying to break away from the Earth's gravity. Then you need to gain the most unbelievable speed of 25,000 miles an hour. That's about 40,000 kilometers per hour, which is approximately 33 times the speed of sound. That's Mach 33. And here's what kills me. That speed is several times the muzzle velocity of a rifle bullet. So you got these three people up there sitting on top of this big giant third stage, sloughing through the gravity of Earth with this rocket firing, straining, pointing out toward the blackness of space, trying to get away from the Earth, and taking Earth's gravity in effect as you sling around the planet, and at the exact moment needed, you pull away from the Earth, and you start accelerating, pointing that rocket where you think the moon will be in two and a half days. Yeah, the moon isn't even there yet. It's nowhere close. You probably can't even see it yet. So you better have some good mathematicians having a really good day down on the Earth to tell you how all this is going to happen and where the moon is going to be. No kidding. Most of this math was done with a slide rule, not a computer. They had slide rules. Does anyone even know what that is? Okay, take a break and Google slide rule and pencils and paper. That's the way they did the math. Sure, there were some computers at NASA at the time, but they took up entire rooms in buildings and they were very primitive. The math was done by people. And the lady that I spoke of previously, Frances Poppy Northcutt, did most of the math for the very first Apollo 8 spacecraft that left the Earth and traveled to the moon. Her math and her team figured it out with the help of many, many others. But she was the, the key player. So Apollo 8 left the Earth in December of 1968 and orbited the moon on Christmas Eve. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. And as a kid, I remember the astronauts reading from the Bible in a live broadcast back to the Earth. And Apollo 8 did not land on the moon. Its main mission was just to see if all this math worked, to see if we could go there and get back. And part of that process is called the TLI, the Translunar Injection. And that's what I've just been describing to you. When you've got your third stage of the rocket, and at some point, you know, you're going 15,000 miles an hour, you fire that rocket pointed just the right way, and trying to get away from the Earth, and that is called the TLI, the Translunar Injection, which means you are injecting your vehicle towards the moon, toward the lunar surface. So let's talk about that third stage a little bit. It had one J2 engine, and it burned liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, and at just the right moment, after being in orbit for two hours and 45 minutes after the launch, the rocket engine of this third stage ignites and starts pushing the spacecraft. After five and a half minutes of the engine burning, 
they were traveling at 24,200 miles an hour and headed towards, uh, well, nothing. There was nothing where they were pointing. (laughs) They were headed towards where the moon should be in two and a half days. And as they traveled for the next two and a half days, the earth was still tugging at that ship, causing them to go slower and slower and slower until about halfway to the moon, maybe two-thirds. The moon's gravitational pull on them was greater than the earth's, and they started accelerating again. So they really knew that it was going to happen when they could see that they were starting to accelerate a little bit more. And the cool part about this particular insertion is that it is called a free return trajectory. And that was a built-in safety. If something went wrong or some catastrophic disaster were to happen, such as Apollo 13, the spacecraft would automatically be gently captured by the moon's gravity, swing the craft around the moon, and would slingshot back to Earth without lifting a finger or firing a rocket. And this is exactly what Apollo 13 relied on for their survival a few months later. Apollo 13 was in April of uh, 1970. So at this point, the astronauts definitely are headed towards the moon, but they have to do a lot of work to get there. First, the guys would separate the service module and command module. Remember, those are connected together, so maybe I'll just refer to them as the service command module from now on. They separated from the third stage of the rocket. Okay, they're going 24,000 miles an hour in between the Earth and the Moon. So they separate the command service module, and they turn it around. So they're traveling backwards, but the nose is pointing back at the rocket that they just separated from. Okay, they, they're 10 feet apart. So the three guys in the service module separate and gently glide away from the third stage. They spin it 180 degrees so that they're facing back towards the rocket they just separated from because on top of that third stage sits the lunar excursion module, the LEM, L-E-M. And the four sides of the rocket open up like a flower or that opens up like a clamshell, however you'd like to think about it, to reveal the lunar excursion module patiently waiting with its little legs folded underneath it to save space. And the service module gently uses its delicate thrusters and moves toward the limb, and they dock with it. Dock is a term that, in space term, just means that the vehicles hook together. So the nose of the command module bumps into the roof, essentially, of the limb, It grabs a hold of it, and they lock on together. And then after docking, the command service module gently uses its thrusters again to pull the limb, the lunar excursion module, the thing that lands on the moon. They pull it out of that spent third-stage rocket that got them going toward the moon. So now we have the command module and the service module together, hooked nose to roof, with the lunar excursion module, the thing that lands on the moon, 
and they're hooked together to form this really goofy looking gangly spacecraft. So the nose of the command module is connected to what is essentially the roof of the limb and where these things were connected was a system of hatches and the tunnel that the astronauts will use to move from one spacecraft to the other. And the cool part of the limb is that it is the only vehicle designed by humans to operate completely outside of Earth's atmosphere, which is why it has no regards for aerodynamics. It will never operate in a place that has air, so it has all sorts of these crazy angles and obtuse shapes. And it was built so delicately and lightly, to save weight, of course, that the outside skin of the lunar excursion module is the thickness of basically three sheets of aluminum foil from your kitchen glued together. Now think about that, because if Neil or Buzz weren't super careful banging around in there, <laughs> landing on the moon, one of them could have put their foot right through the skin of that machine in a heartbeat. So kind of creepy to think about, I guess. So since I talked a little bit about the thrusters using that they use to maneuver, let me explain a little bit about how they did that. When you're talking about a flying vehicle, you talk about yaw, pitch, and roll. Yaw simply means which way you're pointing. Are you going left? Are you going right? That's it. Yaw. Pitch means you are aiming your craft up or down. What direction is your nose pointing? Are you pitching up? or is your nose more up than just straight and level? Or are you pitching down, meaning your nose is not level, but pointing below the imaginary horizon line? When you're on your airliner going to Cancun on vacation, you go down the runway and then the pilot pitches up. You pitch up the nose. When he's getting ready to land, you have to pitch down. So that's what pitch is. And roll means you are spinning or rolling around the center axis of your craft. Now, most people have heard of a plane doing a barrel roll. That means the plane is rolling upside down. And if you keep rolling, you go all the way around so that you're right side up again. The tricky part about doing this in space is that there really is no up or down or left or right, really. On Earth, you can talk in terms of where the ground is in relation to your aircraft. In space, they have what is called a platform, which means the computer is keeping track of the attitude and the position of the craft in relation to an imaginary horizon. And that can be changed several times a day. It's usually in reference to a constellation out in the sky somewhere. And if the guys on the ground need to change it, they just call up these numbers the guys in the spacecraft type it in so now they have their new platform so that they can get directions, basically. And that is way more complex than we need to get into here, but that's the basic idea. All right, back on these thruster things. There are four clusters of four what were referred to as reaction control system thrusters, and they were all around the upper sections of the service module every 90 degrees. And these thrusters would push out a little jet of propellant that would do the same thing as the big rocket engines, but only in tiny bursts that were just 
they would just barely nudge the ship. So it's back to the old every for every action there is an opposite and equal reaction law. So think of the thrusters like this sounds really weird, but think of them as little cans of hairspray mounted on the outside of the ship pointing different directions. If you wanted to pull away from the third stage like we talked about, you would fire the thrusters that pointed behind your ship and it would gently, ever so slowly, give it a nudge forward. And to stop, you would fire the thrusters pointing forward and that would gently push against the mass of the ship to slow it and stop it. And although things are, quote, weightless in space, they still have mass. So if you could magically be on the outside of the service module, put your hands against it and shove it as hard as you could, that ship would move very little, but you would go flying backwards because your mass is tiny compared to the mass of the service command module. So in space, mass is everything. All right, so the service module and the command module are hooked together and the limb is attached to the nose. So the limb looks like it's traveling backwards to the moon. It's being pushed basically by the command service module. And there's a tunnel connecting the ships and they are headed towards the moon or actually where the moon will be in a couple of days, if the math is correct. So along the way, radar from the earth is keeping track of where the ships are and where the moon is and how and where they're moving. And usually during that two and a half journey to the moon, there are several what are called MCCs, mid-course corrections. And this lets the astronauts fire the command service module to point the craft in a newly calculated course because they have, they have a few ways of built-in safeties so that they can kind of get things back on track, so to speak. So the service module had one engine and it was dubbed the most important engine in the world or actually outside the world, I guess, because if it failed to ignite, the guys couldn't get back to earth. All three astronauts would be stranded in space forever. Not nice to think about, but the command module engine was the most important engine because it was, it was so important. It, the three guys totally relied on it with their lives. The command module, remember, did not have an engine because that's the very tippy-top place where the couches were, where the, the astronauts were during liftoff, and they had a control panel. There were thrusters on the command module to keep it in the right orientation during reentry, but the service module is what had that big, giant engine that did the work uh, coming back from the moon. Now, the LEM, the Lunar Excursion Module, had two engines, and they did not fire at the same time. One engine was used for the controlled soft landing descent from lunar orbit to the surface of the moon, and then there was a much smaller engine that was used to lift off the surface of the moon, and it only lifted off the very top half section of the lunar lander. And that's what carried the two astronauts and their rocks and their samples up into lunar orbit to meet up with the orbiting service command module piloted by Mike Collins. All right. Now, remember I mentioned 
a while ago about John Hubolt and the concept of lunar orbit rendezvous. Basically, here's what's going to happen. Once the moon captures the two connected ships into lunar orbit, the whole configuration turns around and fires that big old service module engine to slow the ship down. If they didn't do that, then they would just slingshot around the moon and be pointed toward the earth. So you slow down enough so that you get captured by the moon's orbit or the moon's gravity. So you stay in orbit. So the craft is slowed down enough and it settles into an orbit around the moon at an altitude of 70 miles above the surface. Remember on the earth, you have to be at least a hundred miles up and it's safer to be 200 miles up, but the moon has one sixth the gravity of the earth. So you can be a lot closer. So they're 70 miles above the surface. At this point, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin go down the tunnel where the two ships are connected and they go into the LEM, the lunar excursion module. The hatches are closed. The two ships undock or separate. And Mike Collins is alone in the service command module. And he is going to continue to orbit the moon while Neil and Buzz land on the moon. Now, Mike is going to be very busy because he has a full schedule of doing experiments and running several mapping cameras from the service module, and he's going to be a busy guy. And he's listening in to everything that's happening, but, but he's not up there lollygagging. He's actually working, being a very busy astronaut. So now the LEM uses its thrusters and that big descent engine and points toward the surface of the moon. And as it nears the surface, the guys tilt it so that the engine thrust is now, instead of pointing, basically pushing them toward the moon, now they turn that ship and the engine thrust is pointing down and the moon's gravity is pulling the ship down towards the surface. So the engine is throttled up and down and the thrusters are keeping the attitude of the craft such that they are going to make a soft control landing on the moon. Finally, after about, uh, I think it took about 20 minutes or so, the astronauts were actually resting on the lunar surface after a landing so soft that Neil reported later he wasn't even sure they were completely down yet. Now, they had all kinds of instruments saying, yep, you're here, but he said it was so soft that uh, he had his doubts. Seems easy, right? Uh, It wasn't flawless. By any means, it was not flawless. And during the last few seconds of descent, there were two alarms that were going off in the cockpit of the lunar excursion module where Neil and Buzz were. These alarms had to be analyzed immediately by the ground crew to see if they should override them, ignore them, turn them off. You know, hey... The um, smoke detector in the kitchen is going off. That's because I'm burning the bacon. The house isn't burning down. So, you know, ignore it. All right. So the other possibility was if Neil and Buzz should grab that abort handle and violently fire that ascent engine, breaking away from the descent stage and return to orbit, meet up with Mike in the service module and then go home. So there were all kinds of possibilities. So the first alarm was called 
1202 alarm, and that's very famous in the world today. And this meant that the computer of the lander was being overtaxed. It kept dropping calculations and getting confused. And it was just, it was supposed to do some calculations and it would say, uh, I got too much going on. I'm overloaded. I'll just, I'll try to catch up. I'm just going to drop all that and move forward. Well, that's not exactly what you want a computer to do when you're trying to land on the moon. And remember the computer on your cell phone is something like 500 times more powerful than what they had in the lunar excursion model. So anyway, the computer was being overloaded with information and the ground crew looked at the telemetry and they discerned, they determined it was okay to ignore it because that particular computer was not being used at that time for anything really important because Neil was at this point manually flying the machine by looking out the window, literally he was flying the thing and Buzz was calling out stats about the descent rate, the rate of forward motion and all that sort of thing. Okay. Fast forward weeks and weeks after they got home safely, it was later determined that the ascent rendezvous radar switch was in the wrong position on the limb, which means an extra radar was turned on. It wasn't doing anything, but it was telling the computer, Hey, I'm over here. Hello. Hello. Give me some data. And the computer was saying, I don't know who you are. I don't know why, why you're here. I, what now I'm confused. Now I lost my place. So these two computers were talking to each other at the wrong time. And they had no way of knowing that at the time of the lunar landing, but the guys on the ground, the guys and the women looked at it and said, you know what? I think we're okay. So let's just move forward. Talk about a heart attack waiting to happen. Also weeks later, here's a quote from Neil Armstrong. In simulations, we have a large number of failures and we are always spring loaded to the abort position. In this case, in the real flight, we are spring loaded to the land position. That means they had all kinds of simulations run where things went bad. And the first thing you do is abort. Well, they were in a real life situation in a real life aircraft, practically on the surface of the moon. And Neil was basically saying, Nope, in my head, I'm landing, I'm landing this thing. So you're going to have to come up with a lot of information to make me not do that. The dude had ice water in his veins. I'm telling you. All right. They figured out the 1202 alarm was no big deal. Don't worry about it. But as soon as that fun was over, another alarm sounded. This time it was called a 1201 alarm. All right. You ready for this? The 1201 alarm meant they were running out of gas. Seriously, they were running out of fuel. It's basically like your low fuel light coming on in your car, except they're trying to land on the fricking moon. So the landing computer was trying to put them down in a predetermined place, but they came into the lunar surface, uh, what's called a little hot. They were going a little bit faster and a little bit higher than what they should have been. And the computer was just trying to do its best and land where they were supposed to, but they were being put down in a big boulder field and you can't land the lunar excursion module on a boulder and get back home. 
So Neil was looking out the window and he's like, huh, I guess I got to fly this thing. So he overrides the computer. He's looking out the window and taking a little bit longer than what it should have doing the math to land the thing. And he found a nice flat spot and landed the limb. And at one point, the ground guys called out the fact that he had 60 seconds of fuel. And I swear anyone else would have aborted and gotten out of there. But Neil said weeks later, again, upon his debriefing, he said that in his mind, he was thinking, cool, I have 60 seconds of fuel. No problem. Whereas me and everyone else was losing their minds thinking, you've only got 60 seconds of gas. Get out, get out, get out. So that's what I call keeping a cool head and a great attitude. Again, weeks later, they determined that he actually did have more fuel than that, but the fuel was sloshing around so much that it was giving the sensors false readings as to the amount of fuel that was left. But no one knew that at the time. To them, and to Neil, and to Buzz, it was a situation of having 60 seconds of fuel. That was some serious freaking ice water in his veins, believe me. So now, Neil and Buzz are on the lunar surface inside the LEM, and Mike is up in orbit in the service command module. And at this point, people have noted that poor old Mike was referred to as the loneliest man in the world because he was further from another human more than anyone else. Neil and Buzz were 250,000 miles from Earth, but they were three feet from each other. (laughs) They were three feet from another human. Mike was sometimes thousands of miles from Neil and Buzz, making him the most isolated human. Neil and Buzz go through their checklist. They're on the moon. And they're supposed to sleep after doing a bunch of checklists. But they called back to Earth and basically said, and of course I'm paraphrasing here, dude, we are on the freaking moon. We are not going to sleep. Are you crazy? Let's go for a walk. Okay, they probably didn't use those exact words, but I bet it was pretty close to that. And you can find all these transcripts on the worldwide interwebs if you want to read up on this sort of thing. At that point, Neil and Buzz are suited up in their EVA suits. EVA stands for Extravehicular Activity Suits. And Neil steps out onto what is called the porch of the limb. And he climbs down the ladder and he stands on one of the big pads at the base of the landing gear on the limb. He takes a quick look around, describes a few things, and he tells the world he is, quote, stepping off the limb now. And at that point, the famous words... One small step from man, one giant leap from mankind. So that was the quote from Neil on the moon. And as a precaution, he quickly scooped up some soil, grabbed a couple of small rocks, and he put them in a special pocket on his EVA suit. And this was called the contingency sample. This was in case bad things happen and he and Buzz had to quickly uh, leave the surface without setting up their uh, experiments and getting the amount of samples that they were supposed to do. Uh, At least they had a scoop of soil and a couple of rocks on his person, in his pocket. And to this day, when my wife and I are on vacation, 
The first thing I do at any destination is tell her we are going to do a contingency photo, which means I quickly take a couple of selfies of us together just in case things go awry, and we will always have those contingency photos if nothing else. After Neil and Buzz are through on the surface, they load up into the limb and they're ready to fire the ascent engine. This engine is very important because if it doesn't work, then they will be stranded on the surface until they die from lack of oxygen. Not a pretty thought. And remember, this engine has never been fired before, ever, never been tested because the fuel and the oxidizer used in this particular engine are so corrosive and caustic that to test it would destroy it by the latent fuel eating away at the parts. The fuel and the oxidizer on this engine were referred to as hypergolic fuels because they needed no ignition source, no spark, no flame. You simply put the fuels together and all hell breaks loose and they ignite on their own. Now that's a safety built-in safety issue because not having an igniter or an ignition source means that's one less thing to break or to go wrong. The other factor was the fact that this engine and all of the others on the service module and the limb had been in the vacuum and temperatures of space for a few days. The temperature was about minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 156 degrees Celsius. That's a lot of cold for a long time. Now there were three ways to light the ascent engine because the engineers were thinking we need to get those people off the moon. So number one, you can have the computer count it down and fire it. Number two, you can manually tell the computer to count it down and fire the engine. Number three, and this one totally freaks me out, Neil and Buzz would bend down, they would each grab this valve, they, uh, you know, they each had this valve, Neil had one, Buzz had one, one was for the fuel, one was for the oxidizer, they would look each other in the eye, count down, and open these valves, that they had in their hands to dump fuel into the combustion chamber to fire the engine. Really? These guys were so hardcore. I, I don't even like thinking about that. Three, two, one, ignition. The top half of the limb is blasted away from the lower half, leaving the heavy descent engine and the landing gear behind on the surface. The ascent stage flies up into lunar orbit 60 miles above the surface, and the next stage begins. Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. Remember I talked about John Hubolt earlier. He's the guy that figured out Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. So now, Neil and Buzz are in what's left of the limb. It's about half the size of what it was when it landed because the bottom half was no longer needed, and it was left on the surface of the moon. So Neil and Buzz are orbiting the moon and Mike Collins is orbiting the moon in the command service module. But how did it get together? This sounds funny, but to get close to each other in space, one of the vehicles must slow down to go faster. Wait, what? What? All right. In orbit, 
the higher the altitude, the slower you travel relatively to the surface. In other words, if you were in orbit at 100 miles above the surface, and I was in orbit 50 miles above the surface, I would be moving faster than you are in relation to the ground below. If you and I are both in orbit at 100 miles and 20 miles apart, we would never get close to each other. So what I have to do is I fire my engine pointing backwards to slow down. And that makes me drop into a lower orbit. In that lower orbit, I actually start going faster than you are if you stay up at your 100 mile high orbit. And just before I catch up with you, I see you on my radar. Maybe I can visually see you out of a window. I fire my engine again to climb back up into your orbit altitude. And we can now use our thrusters to gently move closer together. This is exactly what the LEM and the service command module did in lunar orbit. They finally got close enough so that Mike Collins docked with the LEM, opened the hatches when they were locked together, and Neil and Buzz traveled through the connecting tunnel back into the command service module. And of course they transferred their rocks and lunar soil samples. They undocked from the LEM and we're ready to head home to Earth. So here's a quick fun fact. On later Apollo missions to the moon, after the ascent stage of the LEM was undocked and the astronauts were headed home in the command service module, ground control in Houston took radio control of the LEM, turned it around back toward the moon and fired the engine. And they drove it on a collision course to the surface of the moon and crashed it on purpose. Now it was purposely crashed onto the surface because there were lots of seismic sensors placed by Apollo 11, Apollo 12, 14, 15. They all put up their seismic experiments on the moon. It turns out that upon the crash of the limb on the moon's surface, the moon reverberated and vibrated for over an hour. And the NASA folks said it was acting like a bell had been struck. And these experiments totally made them rethink the construction and composition of the moon. So that was a really interesting idea somebody had. And you can actually see pictures online of these crashed limbs and the craters they make. All right, anyway, so now the astronauts get a lot of info from Earth and they adjust the pitch and the yaw of the ship toward where the Earth will be in two and a half days. But here's the kicker. They are about 250,000 miles away from Earth, and to re-enter the atmosphere safely, they need to be at the perfect angle, and I mean perfect angle. If the angle of their re-entry is too shallow, the spacecraft will hit the atmosphere and skip off of it like a stone being skipped on the surface of the water. And they would be thrown into space with no way to get back. Remember, when they re-enter, it's only the tip top of the rocket, that 10 by 12 foot pyramid section with the three guys in it. The, uh, before they re-enter, the service module has been jettisoned. That's the piece with the big engine in it. All right. 
So if the reentry angle is too shallow, they skip off like a rock on a pond. That's, that's death. You, you don't recover from that. If the angle of reentry is too steep, they dig into the atmosphere of the earth too quickly and they burn up. They need to hit the perfect angle to gently slow down the ship. They use the ablative nature of that massive heat shield on the bottom to protect them from the heat. Ablative means that is it is built to decay and slough off part of its material as it heats up from the friction of the molecules in the air. And when they're re-entering, they're traveling at about 24,000 miles per hour or 38,000 kilometer per hours. And these guys, these dudes were smoking fast, literally faster than a bullet fired from a rifle. All right. Now here's where, (laughs) if that wasn't scary enough, here's the really scary part to me. Let's pretend that you and I are standing on an American football field. And that's a shout out to all my international listeners. An American football field is 100 yards long. That's 91 meters. Okay, let's pretend the moon is on one end and the earth is on the other end of the field. And to hit the correct corridor of the angle to re-enter the earth's atmosphere would be the same as if you and I were standing on one end of the field and throwing a dart to the other end. Remember a pointy dart, like you're in a pub and you're playing darts with your mates, okay? So a dart with a little point on it. So we're throwing a dart from one end to the other, 100 yards or 91 meters away, and we have to hit a sheet of printer paper. Throwing a dart that far and hitting a target that small, but wait, I forgot to tell you something. We have to hit that sheet of paper if only the edge is facing us. The tip of our dart has to hit a target the thickness of a sheet of paper. Not the width of a sheet of paper, the thickness of a sheet of paper, or we die. So the good news is our old friend mid-course corrections that we talked about earlier. The MCCs, mid-course corrections. The ship is constantly being monitored by radar from the Earth, and the astronauts were constantly taking sextant readings from the stars to determine exactly, and I mean exactly, where they were. So two and a half days later, when they were danger close to Earth, they could be assured that due to several mid-course corrections, that they were on target at that correct angle and they could separate from the service module and use the thrusters on the command module to get at the right orientation to enter the atmosphere. So now we're dipping down into the atmosphere of the earth. We're going 24,000 miles an hour. And as the ship heats up, the heat shield temperature reaches 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 2,700 degrees centigrade. And there was a thing called an LOS, loss of signal. And that was normal because you have all kinds of weird ions and things happening uh, that, that uh, garble and scramble radio waves. So you don't have radio contact with anyone at that point. 
but it was always a nervous three minutes of radio silence before ground control could reach the space capsule. And by that time, usually the parachutes were almost deployed or were deployed and normal radio communication was established. So now your spacecraft, your command module, has been through 5,000 degrees of hell and the three guys on board were undergoing unbelievable amounts of G-forces and you fall to a certain altitude and poof, three big beautiful parachutes come out and you splash down in the Pacific Ocean as planned. And at that point on Apollo 11 only, the crew puts on what we would now call a rubberized biohazard suit or a chemical weapons suit used by the military because no one really knew if the moon had strange viruses or unhealthy pathogens that could infect or kill people back on Earth. So the crew was taken to the awaiting aircraft carrier, the USS Hornet, by helicopter and escorted to a quarantine trailer. And this was basically a big mobile home trailer where the crew and a few doctors and professionals would live for 21 days, three weeks, testing and working to determine if it was safe for them to walk around among the rest of us. And it was later determined that no other lunar landing crews needed to do this in the future. So these guys went all the way to the moon and back and then had to sit in a trailer for 21 days. So that's the way you get to the moon and back. Happy anniversary to the crew and all of the hundreds of thousands of supporting people that made it all possible. 50 years ago on July 16th, that big massive brute of a rocket, the Saturn V, crept its way up the gantry, cleared the tower, and started toward history. Neil Armstrong passed away on August 25, 2012. But good old Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins are still here to celebrate with us. So the next time you look up at the moon, think about these brave people in that spacecraft and the hundreds of thousands of other good, good people that worked to put them there. Now I say goodbye and I will close this episode and I will quote from the crew of Apollo 8 from their live broadcast from their spacecraft orbiting the moon for the first time ever in history on Christmas Eve of 1968. After they talked for a few minutes and read the creation story from the Bible, Frank Borman said these words, and from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night and good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. I will leave you with that.